Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Stan Bunger, along with Holly Kwan, and our depth on this edition of In-Depth on KCBS is Karen Philbrick, the executive director of the Mineta Transportation Institute at San Jose State University. Holly? Doctor, thanks for for joining us. Um, First off, so how did you get to downtown San Francisco from San Jose? Well, this morning I commuted to downtown San Francisco via Uber. So how did that work for you? I mean, Uber is so, well, it's not new anymore, but it was new sort of if you look at the, the grand scheme of things. Yes, Uber was actually founded in 2010, and it's had a major impact on how people travel. For me personally this morning, I'm the mother of a precious five-year-old daughter, and the train schedule could not accommodate my commute into San Francisco. So wanting to make sure that I used my time most efficiently, I decided to opt for Uber, which allowed me to make business calls, work on my laptop, and get from point A to point B safely. So this speaks to a real issue for transportation planners everywhere. We had a system for a long time that was kind of top-down. The system set the schedules and the riders or users met the schedule. Now it's flipped the other way. You or I at any moment can say, I want to go from here to here. I don't really need VTA or Muni or Caltrain or Samtrans or fill-in-the-blank as part of that equation. What does this do to the way we are planning our transportation systems and using them? Well, Stan, I have a slightly different perspective, and I absolutely think we do need VTA, we do need BART, and we do need effective public transportation systems. How I visualize Uber, Lyft, and other such uh, companies is as achieving the first and last mile issue. So I might want to take a train into San Francisco, but the train station is two and a half miles from me. Rather than trying to deal with parking, I call Uber, or I use bike share, or another personal mobility device to access that station, and then I take the train or the bus or the light rail the rest of the way to my final destination. And, and that's what a lot of people are, are, are you seeing them do for BART, for instance. Coming down, I, I have a neighbor who would take uh, an Uber to and from the Rockbridge BART station from, from the hills where they don't have very um, convenient buses. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Holly. Absolutely, we're seeing this as as really helping people to access transit systems. Because at the end of the day, Uber and Lyft are still cars on the road. We, we have a congestion problem in the Bay Area, as we all know too well. So we still want to get cars off the road and get people onto public transportation. Well, let's keep going down that road because this has been an area of contention. The question of whether the Ubers and Lyfts make traffic worse or make it better. Uh, and we haven't, to my knowledge, really gotten a clear, definable, objective answer to that question. Do you know better than that? No, Stan, you actually summed it up quite well. There's not a definitive answer at this time. The issue really is, is you have Uber or Lyft drivers, and they're just circling waiting for a fare, they're adding to the congestion. However, if they actually have a fare and they're taking that person in a carpool type setting, 
we're reducing the number of single occupancy vehicles. Same if they drop them at public transportation stations. And what about connecting in a better way? Holly referenced, you know, certain neighborhoods don't have great public transit outflow mm-hmm. uh, or maybe usage patterns. Uh, maybe the buses are already there, but people aren't used to using them. So now we overlay this uh, ride share type system, the, the Uber Lyft system. Uh, and th- how does that plug into uh, the must be scheduled nature of trains, ferries, buses, and so on? Mm-hmm. Well, it's one tool in the toolbox is how we see it. When we really want to talk about the congestion in this region, we need to look at it as a whole system and not work in silos. So when we talk about transportation, we're thinking about getting people that first and last mile to transit. So it's not just a car. You've We spoke earlier about personal mobility devices. Might be a skateboard, might be a bicycle, might be an electric kick scooter. Any one of these things have shown to be effective in actually helping people from a suburban area reach a transit agency property. Well, that those e-scooters and e-bikes, those are, again, something that that filled a need, um, just like Uber and and Lyft were at at one time. Mm -hmm. So it, it just feels like there will always be a way. People will figure out a way to get where they need to go. It's just do do, do they how do you get them to do it I don't know the right way, whatever that is? Well, the right way would be getting getting people out of their cars. Um, I think public education comes into play. I think there are opportunities now in existence that people aren't aware of. For example, microtransit. That's the use of flexible uh, transportation alternatives to reach trains, light rails, and buses. And it's really addressing the issue you spoke about earlier, Stan, of how to get people to fixed routes that they may not know about or know how to access. So again, just another tool in the toolbox. You know, for a long time around here, people talked about the balkanization of our of our transit system. I, I lost track of how many agencies, but it's a lot. I mean, we, we've already named a few of them and we've left out a few. Now we've layered in these private for-profit companies Um, Who's sitting in the middle of all of this trying to make sure that it actually does work? Or do we just have to sort of wait for it to organically sort itself out? I think a little bit of both. We have a terrific leader at the Metropolitan Transportation Commission, uh, Steve Heminger, who's the executive director who looks at everything with a regional approach and brings the CEOs and general managers of the transit agencies together to talk about making sure that the systems integrate most effectively. And in some cases, we try new things and we need to sit and wait, collect the data, see how effective it is. How effective are uh, tech buses? Tech buses have become, uh, is, you know, friend or foe, depending on on your perspective. That's right. Um, Friend or foe, it's removing single occupancy vehicles from the highway. It's helping people achieve their places of employment most efficiently, allowing them to use that time to either relax, work, or read. So I'm actually a fan of those buses. There's this economic equity argument that has to come into the the discussion whenever you talk about all of this, though, because the tech buses are full of people, by definition, making good money. Then you go back to public transportation, which some of those folks might have ridden, were it not for the tech buses. Same thing's true with even local buses when you factor in the Ubers and Lyfts. So uh, where are we going in that regard? Will we wind up with a transportation future where people who can't afford it ride the city bus and people who can ride the air-conditioned bus with the reading lights and the Wi-Fi? 
Well, I think many of our public buses now have Wi-Fi, air conditioning, and nice lighting. I don't think they're the dark and dank modes of transportation that we might visualize from decades past. And the equity piece is critically important. But the bottom line is we have plenty of people making very good salaries utilizing our public transportation systems now. It's really about what's going to get you to your places of employment, your places where you socialize, or where you shop. So is it then rebooting how we think, getting people to be more um, open-minded to trying these various forms? It's, It's not just being able to provide them with an option. It's getting them to use it. You're exactly right, Holly. We, we have this mindset, some people do, of certain generations, that you have to have the two cars and the two-car garage and the house and the suburban neighborhood. But we're seeing a change in the mind focus. So, for example, when you look at the population 65 and older, we're seeing a trend where they also want to be in transit-oriented development properties so they can walk to where they want to shop or meet for coffee. And in fact, in the United States, the population age 65 and older is expected to grow by 77% in the next 30 years. So when we talk about public transportation or even electric and connected vehicles, autonomous vehicles, this is a way to help our aging population who may have ambulatory issues still live a full and rich life. Yeah, so let's talk about the generational change because that's an interesting part of this story. Um, the 50s and 60s and 70s, even into the 80s and 90s, California, like much of the country, was building freeways as fast as it could, putting people in cars as often as it could, building entire cities, modes of shopping, education. It was all based on getting there in a car. We're left with that built landscape. Um, So are younger generations, based on, on the evidence you've seen, changing the way we're going to use what we've been left with? Yes. Yes, we are seeing that. So we're seeing a few things happen. Number one, millennials are obtaining their driver's license at later ages. No longer are we in the age where at 15 years old, you can't wait to get that that learner's permit to drive your car. So we are also seeing that in the millennial generation and also our traditionalist generation, that they want to be located where it's close proximity to everything that's happening. This is a change. It used to be before people wanted their private houses and their suburban lifestyles. Now we're becoming more urbanized in this particular region. And what we see too is that when you're trying to recruit for jobs, take the millennials again since we're using that example, they want to be located in close proximity to transit systems They want to walk, they want to bike, they want real-time travel information, and they want to be connected while they're commuting. It's it's interesting. Yesterday, I was walking down Broadway in downtown Oakland. I was headed to the Hive, which was, um, you know, a a big sort of hip food-oriented kind of It's okay to say it, Holly. You were hanging out with the hip Yeah, well, well, (laughs) what happened was interesting was that I was walking down the street, and I had two young guys coming towards me on those um, those e-scooters. And they were going at a pretty good clip. And one of them whizzes by me and says, let's go to Grocery Outlet. And I thought, that's like 20 blocks, you know, down, down the street. And then I realized with this mode of transportation, what they were using, which was really just sort of, you know, normal for them, allows them to get 20 blocks down for, for to pick up lunch and then get back to work, which is not something that I would have ever thought of. You know, when when in the past, I would have thought, oh, we got to get in the car. Oh, somebody's got to go, you know, go pick up lunch. Yes, that is such a wonderful vignette to describe what we're talking about. I mean, that, again, is a personal mobility device. We're seeing them pop up 
everywhere. State regulations are still in flux, but what we know is those personal mobility devices, kick scooters, skateboards, etc., log nearly 50 million miles per year. If you're powering through your own muscles, you can go 8 to 10 miles per hour on average. If you use a motorized scooter, it's 10 to 20 miles per hour on average. They're cost-effective, but here's the rub. Not everybody is following the rules. Technically, you need to have a driver's license. You should be in the bicycle lane, not on the sidewalk. You should be wearing a helmet. So there's still a little bit of social psychological acceptance issues where people get scared when a scooter whizzes by them. Which is like, exactly what happened. Yes. This guy, these guys didn't have a helmet, and they were on the sidewalk. And I felt like I was in the wrong because I was like, oh, wow, I must be fighting this you know, tooth and nail. This is like, this is, this is, this is change. But they really were not supposed to be whizzing by me that quickly. That's right. I mean, safety has to be our priority, and users are not necessarily operating these devices in the most safe fashion. Does that make you cringe when you see something like that? Because you think, oh, you're not really helping promote this, this mode. Yes and no. Um, I'm glad to see people using those devices. What really makes me cringe is to see a parent with their like four or five year old child in front of them on those devices, because we see that certainly in the streets of downtown San Jose. And that's a real safety problem. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Our guest this week is Karen Philbrick, the executive director of the Mineta Transportation Institute at San Jose State University with Holly Kwan. I'm Stan Bunger. And so since we're sharing stories, uh, here's mine this week, which was the guy installing the auto glass uh, on my wife's car windshield. Yet another victim of bad Bay Area roads, another broken windshield, telling the story of how their business has had to shrink because traffic has gotten so bad where they once served nine Bay Area counties, they've now pulled their horns in because they simply can't guarantee they can get out to do the amount of business. So we talk a lot about this in kind of a you know, a uh, uh, broad, uh, top-down sense. But realistically, people are changing, not just the way they make trips or go to dinner, but here's a business that had to get smaller. Absolutely. I mean, you have to adjust with what's happening in your current environment. What we're seeing is regional traffic congestion has increased 80% from 2010 to 2016. In some ways, that's a sign of the economy returning and people going back to work. But when you're talking about long commutes, not only are you less efficient, a business simply can't operate if somebody's stuck in traffic four hours round trip to get from point A to point B. But let's flip it a little bit and let's think about the impact on the driver, his or herself. The scientific data is clear. Long commutes are associated with diabetes, hypertension, weight gain, increased cortisol levels, which is the stress hormone, more anger, irritation, frustration. So there's all sorts of behavioral and psychological impacts. Shoot, I had a fight with my husband and he wasn't even in the car <laughs> because I was so frustrated with sitting in traffic. So this is like the weather, right? Everybody complains about it. What do we do about it? We have spent billions of dollars. We've talked about this for years. As you point out, the numbers have skyrocketed so dramatically around here. We all grew up with traffic in the Bay Area, but not like we've seen in these last eight to 10 years. Is there a way out of it? There is a way out of it. it it's, it's the long game. There are no easy answers. But one of the most critical and positive things that has occurred of late is the passage of Senate Bill 1, which is the Road Repair and Accountability Act of 2017 
Essentially, it's a 12 cent per gallon gas tax increase indexed to inflation. This is going to go a hell of a long way in improving our roads, our bridges, and our transit systems. Now, let me give you some context. 12 cents per gallon. The average driver per month will spend an additional $10 at the pump. Prior to the gas tax being approved and signed into law, the average driver in the state of California spends $844 annually on road repair costs that result from driving on streets and highways that are in a state of disrepair. We're going to fix that. You know, I've spent many times over the years talking with Jim Gilmetti, who chaired the State Transportation Commission for a while, about that very issue. And the numbers are right there in front of us. We're replacing our tires and our wheels and our shock absorbers. The cars are falling apart. But we don't seem to make the connection between that and the rotten state of our roads. So, you know, people behave the way people behave. You, you've got a background in psychology. Why are we so unwilling to see what's right in front of us when it comes to these issues? <laughs> Those are the blinders that we have. I mean, people, it's called confirmation bias. In fact, people have a mindset and they're only going to look to information that supports their mindset, not to information that's likely to change it. So we really need to have a concentrated educational outreach effort to help people understand the benefits of changing their commute patterns. Think back to the 70s when seatbelts were were put into place and required by law. There was a very low rate of people actually utilizing that until a public education campaign materialized. Then we saw compliance increase dramatically. Speaking of changing behaviors, why are there still cash lanes on on barrier bridges? I mean, I understand, you know, but but, but why are there so many people who, who still feel like they need to be in them or why aren't more people using fast track why is it you know and and what kind of impact does that have mm-hmm. on 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 commute mm-hmm. well certainly you can see that the cash lanes are are very backed up compared to the to the other lanes there are a number of factors number 1 we might have people who don't live in state who are traveling through and don't have the device number 2 it requires a credit card not every commuter has a credit card Number three, it also requires you to maintain a minimum balance in that account. And I think that if we talk about equity, not all of our citizens have the ability to have a fast track. But but aren't these problems that could be solved at a higher level? Couldn't we just have license plate scanners and a system of tracking and payments? We could provide subsidies to people who qualify. I mean, these seem like in an era where I can carry the world's knowledge in my pocket on a smartphone, they shouldn't be that hard to solve. Mm-hmm. Or, or am I missing something? And I'm sure the answer is I am. Well, Stan, I wish I had a crystal ball that would give me all the answers. Hindsight, of course, is twenty twenty. So some of the solutions that have been implemented now just seem like common knowledge. But at the time, they were very innovative. And I think when we look at the Internet of Things and smart cities, some of the technological innovations you just mentioned will be rolled out. But this all takes time because you have to have policies and regulations in place to make big changes. But we do need those orders of magnitude leap that you're talking about to really address the congestion. Let me go back to the gas tax for just a moment here. And of course, this is up in the air now with the possibility of of a repeal on the November ballot. But, you know, it's sort of like a law of diminishing returns here, isn't it? I mean, we're getting better gas mileage. We're often driving cars that don't use any gasoline. So going into the future, is the gas tax the answer, or are we going to need to completely start with a fresh sheet of paper and come up with a better way of raising revenue for vehicle usage on our roadways? Mm -hmm. 
Um, I think you're right with your last statement, and I will say you've just made my heart skip a beat because you understand the issue, which is that with increased fuel efficiency, the number of dollars collected at the pump have decreased dramatically. Now, when you look at the federal landscape and, and the state of our highways, bridges, culverts, et cetera, you see that the grade that we get from civil environmental engineers is a D plus. In large part, our infrastructure is supported through the Federal Highway Trust Fund, which receives a significant portion of revenue from the gas tax. Federal gas tax has not been raised in 25 years, was not indexed to solution to inflation, which means the amount of money collected is a fraction of what it was in 1993. So there's less revenue to support the fix-it-first policies. So we do see that dwindling. So that's why we're looking at things like vehicle miles traveled, because you brought up the example of the electric car. Somebody driving a $100,000 Tesla may pay zero at the pump. So they're paying nothing to use our roads and our bridges where somebody who might be working for that individual who drives a fuel inefficient vehicle is supporting Tesla driving on our roads. So the answer is vehicle miles traveled. It's a whole suite of interventions. How far are we away? I know there have been tests in Oregon and elsewhere on this, but realistically, how many years before we can implement a scheme like that in California? You know, Stan, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I knew, do know that a pilot was just completed in California with VMT. What what would you like to see um, besides people adopting these newer, better, however you want to describe it, uh, modes of transportation? Do you want to see things like BART expanded? Um, you know, I was talking to an economist who, who looked at the, the Tri-Valley area and said there were so many people coming over the Altamont Pass, it would be better if we could expand, um, you know, public transit to places like, you know, connecting Tri-Valley to San Joaquin County. Um, do more like, not just ACE train, but, but, but you know, push BART out further or something like BART. Um, is that something that, that would work? Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. What we know is if you add another freeway lane, it's just going to get congested too. We certainly can't add additional runways at SFO. So the answer really is public transportation, the feeder systems, and the advent of high-speed rail. So we're connecting regions across the state in an efficient manner. Now the answer of what I'd like to see is, I'd like to see this, this wonderful transit-oriented development environment where you have people living in dense urban environments where they can walk to, to work and to play and where there's green open space that encourage active transportation, walking, bicycling, skating but that still maintains that sense of cultural vibrancy. And it's placemaking. Let's face it, the landscape even in retail is changing. We're not building big malls anymore. We're building small destinations where people want to sit and have their coffee and people watch. Let's do it where we live, and let's do it around train stations. We're almost 23 minutes into the program, and I don't think we've mentioned autonomous vehicles yet. I was and, getting and, there. <laughs> this could be such a, a massive game changer, both for good or ill, right? If everybody decides to stay in their car, but the car drives itself, have we actually gained anything? Well, I mean, at this point, there are 
supporters, and there are people who don't support autonomous vehicles. Some estimates suggest that it will reduce vehicle crashes by up to 94%, and that if you actually have the cars waiting in areas versus circling, it would reduce congestion because the cars would communicate with one another. There would be um, what's called platooning. They could drive closer together, less of a distance between cars, which could actually improve flow. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in terms of the safety record and whether or not it really does effectively address congestion. Well, that also has to um, affect how you think about whether I want to take one. Do I trust it? Yeah. Yes. And, and the recent accidents that we've seen in the news have not helped people feel safe. User acceptance will, in fact, be an issue. And so we will have to have public education. We will likely see early adoption in our younger generations. But those are all very valid issues. It, it also has to do with control, because if I'm behind the wheel, I feel like I'm in control. If I am not behind the wheel, whether I'm in an, an Uber or in a BART train or in an autonomous car, I'm not in control. And I, and I'm, I don't like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how, how, Holly raises a great point. I mean, as we try to wedge people out of cars, uh, they'll put up with a lot. But it's because they think they're in charge of what they're putting up with. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I, I think that's true. And, and that will be a portion of the population who might not adopt that technology. People want to be in control. There's about 34% of people who say that they will always own a vehicle because they don't want others making decisions for them. They want to walk out and get to the car and go where they're going. So it has to reach a point of psychological tension in their own lives where a change has to be made if we want to see the user acceptance increase. Transit-oriented development. Now, they've tried uh, in recent years to cluster some development along the BART corridor. Are there other places in the Bay Area that you're aware of that could be doing a better job where we might uh, solve you know, kill two birds with one stone, solve our transportation issues, and provide the desperately needed housing. Absolutely, there are other areas. Let's take downtown San Jose, for example. We have a number of cranes in the sky building high-rises. And you may have read about Google building one of their campuses in that area. Google chose that area because of the opportunity for transit-oriented development to make sure that the workers were located right where they want to live and they want to work and they want to play. People don't want to spend four hours in a car commuting. Um, so, You think that that one has a chance? <laughs> that one has a chance. I, I wonder about when you, you get someone who is living near transit and, and they take um, – they take they go well, I don't know however long their commute is is to to work. I just imagine people if they they live in the city and and they work in the city and they take Uber or a, or a scooter or whatever they don't ever have to go anywhere. They don't have to go outside the confines of the city. I'm just using San Francisco sure. as an example. But um, to me, sometimes it, it, I feel like then then you miss out on on things in, in in other areas you miss out on maybe you know going to Marin you miss out on on things in the east bay or or in the south bay and and, and does that then create a, a mindset of of being somewhat provincial i mean i think it could but i don't think that that people will stop traveling outside the bounds of their immediate neighborhood i think that people's interest in excitement and adventure if they've got that in their soul, it's going to manifest, regardless of if they have their own car. Last 30 seconds. So let me ask you, um, from where you sit 
looking at all the research, all of the trends at the Mineta Transportation Institute, where you think we are uh, on the scale of getting from where we started with a real set of headaches around transit and transportation in the Bay Area and where we need to get to? Are we halfway there, quarter of the way there? What's the crystal ball look like to you? Well, the crystal ball in the next 10 to 15 years will see innovation at the very heart of it. So whether that's delivery of packages via drone, flying cars, additional capacity in our transit systems or autonomous vehicles, bus rapid transit using vehicle signal prioritization. We're going to see all of these things develop and grow, and it will help alleviate congestion in our environment. But we need to look to technological solutions and innovation to help with that. Thanks for your time. And thank you. We've been talking on KCBS In-Depth with Karen Philbert, the executive director of the Mineta Transportation Institute at San Jose State University. With Holly Kwan, I'm Stan Bunger. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for All News 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app.